Radiant, vulnerable, powerful leader. Yes, you are. Ready? Radiant, vulnerable, powerful leader. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Okay. I think we need to back up a few days from when this audio was recorded in Lauren's car with Omid on loudspeaker as we were cruising through West Hollywood. Three days earlier, it was New Year's Day 2020, 6am, and I was somewhere in the canyons of Topanga, when a man I had just met said he had a challenge for me. I didn't know it then, but his challenge would set off a whole chain of events that would lead us right here. Welcome to the Vulnerability Challenge. I've set myself the challenge to be more vulnerable in 2020. So every month this year, I'll be taking on a vulnerability challenge, set by someone new each time that is wildly out of my comfort zone. I hate to do things alone, so I'm dragging you along for the ride and sharing how they felt and what I learned. I'll also be interviewing someone every episode, exploring what makes them vulnerable too. I believe that sharing intimate stories that we might find embarrassing or painful are in fact the biggest source of connection between us and ultimately give power to ourselves and to others. I invite you to take the challenge too and join me on this journey. Let's get vulnerable. This first episode will hopefully give you some context into how this all started. I decided relatively last minute that I would spend the second half of December in Los Angeles. I stayed with one of my best friends, Lauren Taus. She said that for New Year's Eve, she was going to a sound bath and gong ceremony in Topanga. So I went and I met a few of her friends when we arrived, including a guy called Omid. We listened to this beautiful music over many hours, and we all stayed the night, bringing blankets and duvets and snacks. And in the morning, I felt tender and reborn. The dawn of a new year. So many ideas and resolutions that I knew I would throw away before February. We were asked to go around and say what our word for 2020 would be. And something bubbled up in me, and I said, vulnerability. Lauren smiled at me approvingly. We were sat around a little later when Omid declared that he had a challenge for Lauren. She squealed as she sometimes does with childish excitement, and everyone we knew gathered around to hear what this challenge would be. He leaned in and said, you're going to call Robin, and he pointed to a girl that was sat between Lauren and I, at 4pm on Friday exactly. And you're going to talk to her the way that you talk to yourself. I didn't get it. To me, there was no difference between the way I talked to myself in my head and the way I talked to myself to other people. But when I looked at Lauren, she was totally devastated. She looked down and shook her head and said, I can't do that. There's no way. There were tears in her eyes. I'll say horrible, cruel things to her. I can't do that. Omid looked at her and said, and that's exactly why you will do it, so that you can finally hear yourself out loud, hear how crazy it sounds, and apologize to yourself. So this challenge really struck to the core of her problem, and she agreed to take it on. I was still trying to wrap my head around how different Lauren and I were, 
when Ahmed turned around to me and said, I have a vulnerability challenge for you too, the whole group seemed to lean in with anticipation. You have five days, five red roses. You have to walk up to five men you do not know that you find attractive and tell them a true and honest compliment that you're feeling in that moment and give them the rose. Lauren was immediately back to squealing. She would have loved to swap our challenges. She thought this was so beautiful. This was something she would just do for fun on an average day. But I was mortified. There was nothing I could imagine I wanted to do less than walk up to strangers and give them compliments. It made me want to be sick in my mouth just thinking about it. I politely said no, but the whole group looked at me, and one of them said, but remember your word for 2020. So I sighed and said yes. That moment in the car at the beginning was three days later, when I decided I needed to call Ahmed on loudspeaker and ask him to make some amendments to my challenge. Firstly, I didn't like the idea of the roses. They felt like a gimmick, like there would be a camera crew that popped out from behind the bushes. It was too unrealistic that I would be walking down the streets with five roses and giving out meaningful words. Secondly, I wasn't really crazy about the words part either. I didn't feel like they needed to be verbal. Could I instead design some business cards that said nice little compliments on them and I could hand them out to people as little keepsakes? That way they could keep the card because they can't really keep my words when I just blurt them out. And finally, I needed an extension on the deadline. I only had two days left and any time I so much as looked at a stranger, I felt nauseous. I needed more time. Omid burst out laughing, even though I was being totally serious. He said he would make concessions on the roses, as the challenge, of course, was about the words. But that these words had to be said verbally while maintaining eye contact with the person, because that's where the vulnerability lay and I knew it. He granted me another week and offered me that mantra, I am a radiant, vulnerable, powerful leader. A few days later, I went and had lunch with an old friend in LA. We were catching up about work when a server came up to grab my plate. I looked up to thank him and I was met with literally the most beautiful face I've ever seen. He was this young South American boy, a few years younger than me, and he had this body language and demeanor of humility that showed me instantly he had no idea how beautiful he was. He grabbed my plate and looked at me with this sweet smile, and I think my jaw was so far on the floor that he froze, a bit embarrassed. And so I said it, you're beautiful. The words sort of stumbled out of my mouth like a bunch of drunks, like a baby taking its first step, unsure but then suddenly confident. He was taken aback. He clearly didn't get this often, which astounded me. There was something really disarming about giving him that true compliment first. His guard dropped so hard that he suddenly couldn't stop talking to me. And it wasn't flirting, I want to make this clear. I stated pure facts to him and he received them as that. When I finally turned back to my friend, he couldn't quite believe what had happened. I don't talk to strangers, it's not my thing. I did my five over the next week or so and they all came to me in this similar way, not as intentionally setting out to find someone and give them a compliment, 
but as in the moment when I felt my brain tell me, I really want to say this to someone, I felt a little nudge to actually speak it out loud. It was now becoming a habit that the challenge had helped me make, and I find myself still doing it. I've ended up making unexpected friends in unexpected places. I even told a guy in a restaurant in Paris that he had incredible hair, which he did, and he followed me on Instagram, and then the next thing I know, he's visiting London a few weeks later, and we're walking around together, and he's telling me that he's Israeli and plays the saxophone. But what I found fascinating was how different mine and Lauren's challenges were. So I'm super excited and honored to have her on this podcast today. Lauren Taus's work activates your innate ability to self-heal. Under the guiding principle of bringing you back home to yourself, Lauren is a yoga teacher, clinical therapist, and hosts her own podcast, Embodied Life with Lauren Taus. Within her clinical practice, she is also trained by MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, and offers ketamine-assisted psychotherapy an option that can create powerful sustained healing when other traditional interventions have failed. Lauren has also been my on-and-off therapist, free of charge, for the last few years. She would probably just call this friendship, but I would say I get a lot more out of it than she does. So who better to start this process of vulnerability with than Lauren? House House. House House. Thank you for uh, speaking to me. Um, I was kind of, I'm talking in the introduction of this podcast about the experience that we had around New Year's um, with Ahmed, who set both of us a challenge. And I thought it was super interesting that you and I had different challenges. So I wanted to hear more about how your challenge went. He gave me a savage challenge and I rose to the occasion. So hi, everybody. I'm Lauren. I'm a therapist and a yoga teacher. And I'm sure Tiana has given a little bio on me um, before we started the chat. And Tiana is one of my favorite humans. So she knows all things Lauren and I'm blessed to know all things Tiana and to continue to learn together. So uh, I will share intimately with you guys that I was given a challenge on New Year's Eve to verbalize out loud my internal dialogue. And I have been someone who has been very, you know, perfectionistic and and quite brutal with myself. So to say out loud things that I would never dare dream speak to another human being, um, and actually then to say them to another friend of, of ours was the challenge. And it wasn't just like a one-off. He said, do this several times. So you call someone, a friend, and you say whatever nasty, biting, scathing, unapologetic, ruthless, savage words that might pepper your internal landscape out loud. And I did it. And it was hard. Why do you think he said to do it multiple times? Because I think there's something so jarring about saying these things out loud and there's almost like a deflection component where you make it a joke or you can't believe you're saying it. 
it feels theatrical and it's, it's, there's a part of it that just, um, is awkward at first. Yeah. You're kind of not doing it as well. You're not being as mean as you should be the first time, maybe. And even if you are, you're less connected to it. Even just the, the assignment had me in a recognition in a new way around my own brutality and it, what was also interesting about it was that it gave me a, a deeper level of compassion for people who do lash out in different types of violent ways because I was doing that to myself and speaking it out loud really ha- had me realize like I count mm. and it's not okay. I, I, it's not okay to speak to myself in this way. This, this concept, you use this word brutal. I'm brutal to myself. I'm brutal to my body. Where does that come from? I don't, it doesn't really matter where it comes from, to be honest. I've had it for a very, very long time. Um, I would guess that part of it was growing up and not being in control in a, in a household where my sister was sick and dying and doing drugs. My dad was mad and all kinds of different things. Um, and, and also maybe ancestral stuff. I've, I, don't, I've, I don't know. I, I know that it was defense. I know that it was like a, a morbid self-obsession, that like I suck so much and that suckery took up so much mental landscape and energy over years you know I've shifted the dial but there was more work to be done and and I I I think that it's a work of a lifetime I know that the antidote is always service that 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 there's no real space for ego conversations when you're focusing out I really liked when we were we were driving back and you sort of it was the first time it had really been expressed to me this idea that there are two types of people people that uh, resolve conflict outwardly and as you say lash out and people that like sort of lash in that, that have conflict with themselves and I'm very much a lash out kind of person I'm confrontational I get into arguments with people and the way that I communicate with myself is the exact same way I communicate with other people so there's no discrepancy but I've never seen you argue with with anyone and so it was really interesting for me to hear that you do still have those feelings you just communicate them differently you you bring them into yourself and it's not that I've never get in arguments it's it's seldom I'm conflict avoidant and I take it upon myself and making it about me on some level even if it's like oh you're not you're stupid or you're whatever dialogue goes on it gives me a semblance of control because then it's like about me and if I was better then the situation would improve or would be would look different yeah, I guess I always try and control external factors. <laughs> I'm always trying to control other people and situations and how I hope for things to work out. Um, I always like to be very aware of what the all, all the possible outcomes could be. And I try and steer things in certain directions. And obviously that normally doesn't go my way because you can't really control external influences that well. So your strategy of well, let me control myself, my microcosm of, of me, seems like it would be easier to do, but maybe not, right? From your experience of a lifetime of trying to do that. The reality is that we don't have control. That we don't have control over anything, really. Uh, I, what we can manage on some level is our response. And my mechanism to try and control had been one that was self-destructive and was harsh where the my highest wish is to be in a place where I'm operating from a place of of profound love and acceptance for everything myself included 
because that then like allows me to to be in a space of kindness always like it's like okay here what do we what what would you know what would Jesus do what would kindness do like what would what would compassion do so I think that brings us on quite nicely to to my next question which is you're probably the only person that I know that really sees arguments or situations where people are um, maybe saying mean things to you as good feedback and you take it as constructive feedback um, when did that begin or how were you able to see these conversations as, as feedback? And then what do you do with that feedback? Along the way, I somehow developed the ability to pause and to really be reflective around what's mine. And as a human being wrapped in skin on planet Earth, I very much recognize my own imperfect humanness. So if someone is displeased with me, if someone has beef with me or wants has to, something to tell me, I want to listen. Doesn't mean that I'm not going to react. And it's not that I take abuse, but like if someone says to me something and they're right, and I don't like how they're coming at me, and I don't like like necessarily their tone, and I get you know kind of defensive, I, I'm pretty good at just taking a deep breath. And even asking if necessary for a minute, looking at what, what's being presented to me so that I can own what's mine. Someone like me would go into self-defense mode and like, I have to talk back and defend my position. You instead take a pause there. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, it's come up a couple of times with one, one friend of mine who I do some work with. He comes at me angry. He's, he's the one that lashes out. And I, I know to just like take it easy, like he loves me and he's hurt and there's something for me to look at. And then I can say like, you know what? I'm feeling a little bit defensive. Mm. And to say that, right? I'm feeling a little bit defensive. I don't like hearing this. Thank you for sharing this with me. You're right. Now, no one calls me like a selfish, nasty bitch, but like, you know, if someone's like, hey, you left me out, or this really hurt my feelings, or gosh, Lauren, like you're late again, makes me feel like you don't care about me. You didn't invite me to such and th- such and such a thing, whatever little thing that, you know, then creates like tension. First of all, let, let's speak into the power of communication, mm. right? Like life is one long conversation. And so much is left out because we're afraid of hurting someone's feelings. And so then people are like, you know, doing drugs and cheating on their wives or or husbands, you know, it's like, like, because they're not expressing what needs to be expressed. So how do we create enough space to listen and to like get off the self pedestal of like, oh my gosh, I'm under attack. And like, just own what's yours. It really, really builds relationship, builds trust, builds intimacy. That's assuming you haven't like done something really horrific, but like, you know, most, most things can be managed. I think with the communication thing, an issue that I have constantly is that I, I always wonder like, what's a big enough problem for me to communicate with the other person? Say it's a partner that I've just started dating. I always think, this isn't a big enough deal, so I'm not going to bring it up. 
those little things tend to build and build and build. And then I get myself in a situation where I do the opposite of you and I lash out and I go, how did you not realize all of these things that were annoying me? Beauty is in the details and learning to take ownership as well over your experience, but communicating it. So I think that languaging is also really important. It's not like you do this and it really irritates me. It's making requests. It's saying my experience of you is when this happens, the story that I tell myself is, you know, it's little tweaks in the language where you're really then in ownership of your experience, but also in powerful communication and, and authenticity, right? Like authenticity, vulnerability, like as you mentioned, oh, it's too little to share. Says who? It all matters. It really all matters. When I was staying with you in December, I wanted to make like an application or something where I could write down my annoyances and issues with people, the emails that I want to send, and you would essentially translate them into Laurenified language, like psychologist approved, because the way that you change that script is just so beautiful. And you change my words that often come across as very attacking and accusatory into as you say, owning the problem and specifically saying this is my issue that I'm trying to get across to you the best way that I know how and allowing the other person the opportunity to to meet you at that level. Because I tend to attack and then they meet me on attack. And so we're both attacking. Yeah, well, it's it's a, a, an exercise. It's, an, it's a practice for someone like you who's not programmed in that way. And I also think that you're sharing about your reluctance to speak into small things, maybe part of what creates the kind of defensive nature and like the argumentative side, you know, it's, it's really to create space for, for all the, all the parts of you. Mm. I wanted to return to Ahmed's challenge. Why do you think, I mean, he must've known me for all of two hours properly how do you think he was able to suss me out so well and so quickly? Like, do I have a verse to vulnerability written on my forehead? Like, how, why do I come across in such a way that he was able to so quickly tap into what my biggest issue would be? You're so beautiful and you're so smart and you're so creative and talented and capable and so many amazing things I could go on and on and on and on. And I have done before and I will do again and your physical presentation it's it's you know you have sort of a sort of like tomboy demeanor and the shoulders collapsed and you know it's um your body language is sometimes apologetic sorry I'm here <laughs> you know and <laughs> um and there's nothing funny about that but um you know, it's, it's, there's such a staunch contrast between like, you know, you in, in front of a camera, like in a model kind of moment. And then, you know, you in a room with other people take up more space, you know, like shoulders back, heart open, like be in the room, no apologies. I remember even having a conversation with you about an Instagram post and photo where there was like one that you shared 
an image of yourself somewhere fabulous in a bikini. And there was a part of you that's like, maybe I shouldn't share that because I don't want other people to like feel bad or something. And no, like you don't get to hide your beauty because you're afraid that someone else might feel threatened by it. I think Omid's challenge to you was born in seeing how you show up in space and wanting you to kind of be powerful enough to be vulnerable. Vulnerability is, is an authentic power. It's mm. a real power. I agree. It's the only real power. Yeah, that we have any control over and are able to, to put across ourselves. When we unmask ourselves, we hug deeper. We, we hug in a way that's actually penetrating the soul. And when we pretend that everything um, is polished and perfect, there's no, there's no room. There's no place to really like dial in and like feel the, the shared humanity. And we feel into our oneness through vulnerability. Mm. It's like this deep, oh, me too. I got that, me too. And it's humanizing and it's like normalizing and it's, it, it's that like juicy, warm hug vibes. <laughs> we love this line of what you resist persists. And I think it applies to everyone, even people that have done a lot of really amazing work on themselves what would you say you resist the most still? Taking full responsibility. Like I, I, I get stuck in a story that I don't know what I'm doing. Mm. And in doing so, in, in entertaining that loop, I, I, it stops me from fully stepping into my power, from like fully making the impact that I believe I can make. Um, I don't need to be perfect in any of this. And that's, that's another story that I've had. And I mean, perfectionism is of course impossible. Also very boring. <laughs> There's no vulnerability in perfection. Like this, it's, it's not a thing. And perhaps the imperfection is the perfection. But um, I, th I think that resisting full ownership of like my gifts, minimizing them. You have managed to, I don't know how, only through ways that Lauren Taus can uh, convince your, how old is he now? 75-year-old uh, medical doctor, father, into helping you do these assisted ketamine therapy sessions. Can you tell me a bit more about how you went from, I guess, classic psychology and more into using um, these assisted techniques to, to help people and what kind of people are you helping? I went to graduate school to become a clinical therapist and I did a lot of my training years in the trenches. I worked in the American prison system. And then after that in community mental health clinics and what I became increasingly aware of was the lack of tools at my disposal. And while the therapeutic relationship by itself provided a lot of healing, I, kept struggling with conversations on repeat, problems on repeat. And I, and, I, and I myself had known that from my own personal experience in therapy as well. And therapy helped me immensely. It saved my life when I was young. Uh, I, was, I was very badly anorexic and um, it helped me to eat again. You know, like I didn't go into 
a treatment program and I was very uh, suited to, to, to be in one, but you know, therapy got me eating. So helps a lot. And it's also, again, limited. So I was really frustrated and I was also working with some really intense cases. I think I was relieved to be able to integrate certain aspects of somatic experiencing, bringing uh, the body into the conversation, bringing breath into the conversation. But when my mom passed away, I needed to take a little bit of break from, from the clinical space. And in that window, I became aware of psychedelics coming back online and the languaging is important. They were coming back online, right? There was a lot of work that was happening in the 50s and 60s. Um, psychedelics have been used for ritual initiation and medicine in every culture for thousands of years. And I got excited. I was like, wow, th this could actually help, really help support people in transformation. Th this type of tool integrated into a therapeutic dynamic can actually get people where they've been wanting to go. So I knew that, of course, from some of my own powerful experiences and decided at that point that, it, that I had to learn and I had to, to become a, both a provider of these services and also to the extent that that's possible, uh, a voice in, in, in the movement to educate and to liberate the entheogenic plants and chemical compounds that are creating transformational experiences to really support people in understanding how to do this type of work responsibly, if not in an actual therapeutic context. And so I became MAPS trained for the MDMA protocol with complex PTSD, and then later trained in the use of, of ketamine assisted psychotherapy, which is my practice now. And you, you had asked about my father. So for probably five or six years, I, I had a dream that my father would open himself to this type of work and this kind of experience. And my dad is a, you know, Western trained classical MD without, you know, I mean, he completely missed the sixties. He didn't, you know, he's maybe, he has just been very naive and drugs are bad. Drugs are dangerous. This is not, this is no bueno. And I just, committed to educating him and to persistently getting him to learn and read, you know, eventually he said yes to me. So he's been working with me as my prescribing medical doctor. I only ever do medicine work with people once I've already established a relationship with them. I need to know who's in their lives, what their opportunities are, where their challenges are, and really create a, a loving, safe connection such that I'm able to support them doing the work that they need to do on themselves. Like the magic of psychedelics is that they unlock your ability to heal yourself. I become like a, a doctor to a woman giving birth. I'm there to support. I have the tools. I'm there, but I can't push the baby out. I love the way that you convinced your dad over to this is through what we were talking about in communication, where rather than just 
telling him in in a way that would work for you you really thought about how can I communicate this in a way that works for him I would have the same problem with my mum who's also a scientist and a professor she would only be able to be convinced onto something through research papers and books with a lot of appendixes and footnotes and proof you talk a lot about ego dissolution that happens through ketamine specifically why is that moment of ego dissolution important for people that are suffering with with PTSD and other illnesses how is that a possible breakthrough so first of all i want to clarify that ketamine specifically is most beneficial in the treatment of resistant depression and anxiety. I recommend MDMA more powerfully for complex trauma. The way that ego dissolution is supportive is it allows a person, first of all, Einstein said, I love this quote, you can't solve the problem with the same level of consciousness that created it. Can't solve the problem with the same level of consciousness that created it. So you need a, you need a different experience. You need to level up. Or just like let go of the like the kind of conversations, the context, the the patterning that's been so deeply ingrained, and in many ways defensively ingrained. Right, like we have so many mechanisms for evasion, so many misguided defense mechanisms. So ketamine with the ego dissolution, that's a higher dose of ketamine. It's not necessarily what I work with all the time, but when you create that profound of an experience that is outside of ordinary mind, generally it allows a person to come back to themselves with, with perspective, with a different reference point and with more kindness. So the breakthroughs are exponentially accelerated. And then the results that people get in their, in their day-to-day lives are mind blowing to me. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm on my podcast interviewing Rachel Yehuda, Dr. Rachel Yehuda on Tuesday, and, and she's been a trauma researcher for decades. She's, you know, a, a, one of the pioneers in neuroscience and epigenetics, and she's was in my, my training program for the MAPS-MDMA protocol, and she says that she's never in her whole career seen anything as effective as this kind of work. Non-ordinary experiences allow us to come back with different reference points around ourselves and what we're a part of, right? So psychedelic medicine, I also see as immensely helpful for people who are preparing for end of life. I think that, you know, eco dissolution is, lets you know that it's okay to die. Like it's natural. <laughs> and, and I think that we as, as humans want to prolong it and like, you know, extend it. We don't want to talk about it. And, and psychedelics open us to, to the totality of our human experience, which includes death. As someone who has explored psychedelics um, personally, what was the most mind-opening experience for you? Like, which one of these psychedelics did the most interesting thing for you and why? In the right set and setting with the right intention and the right support, they all belong in a beautiful family. And the ones that I've explored have supported me immensely in different ways. I would say that the most profound was an experience with ayahuasca, which essentially got me to 
throw away my scale. That was a remnant of my eating disorder, weighing myself all the time. And I knew for decades that this was an unhealthy behavior and that it was not a behavior that um, was going to support my ongoing growth and development in any way. And yet I couldn't stop. Um, and it seemed benign, or at least I justified it in my mind, but it was really, really heavy in terms of the way it impacted my, my mind and my mood on a day-to-day -day basis. So in this journey, I just got the download that this had to go. Like Mama Aya said, you want your life to change? Throw that thing away. And I said, well, can I put it in my closet? And she said, no, you don't get any back doors. Like we're not doing that. And I did, I threw it away. And I've been delightfully surprised with the degree of ease and comfort I've had without knowing the number and, and also the level of uh, kindness and acceptance that I have around my body. Like, you know, I don't expect my like kind of body focus to be gone entirely, uh, but it's, I'm, I'm present to more curiosity. Uh, there's just so much more kindness. There's so much more kindness and, and, appreciation also for my body for allowing me to have these experiences. It's like, you know, I think people are very deeply, deeply disconnected from their bodies, which is part of why I teach movement. Uh, I, I believe as well that, that we're literally educated and trained to divorce from our own somatic wisdom, that we're, we're educated and trained to act like slave drivers in sacred fields, these bodies. And I, I feel like I've come home and I feel conscious of the way in which my mind has has like been a perpetrator of violence against my body and and they're becoming friends <laughs> and i'm really in in a much deeper practice of listening like my movement has always been a saving grace for me and and i've always had some level of attunement and listening from that perspective but there's a much wider, deeper, more interesting conversation that I feel is happening that was ignited through an ayahuasca journey. It's beautiful that you had that experience and I'm personally forever grateful that you continue doing movement um, because you're definitely the best yoga teacher I've ever had. Um, you. And you throw in like a side of therapy with every class, which is always great. Um, but I, another thing that I... I think comes up in in ayahuasca specifically that I think people are, are afraid of is grief and like remembering previous experiences of loss as someone that has gone through two huge cataclysmic grief experiences in your immediate family what do you think is the relationship between grief and vulnerability for you you can't welcome grief without vulnerability the heart breaks open. I've also been talking a lot about being a channel, not a container. You know, you can envision a, a straw versus a Pyrex. So the Pyrex, you, you close the Pyrex and, and, and you close down and you shut down, you harden, right? Versus like letting yourself be the straw, like let, let the energy go through you, let the sadness come, let, it, let the waves of grief crash against your shores and like, 
it's love. It's only ever love. To love is to know grief. You know, when my mom died, someone told me, this is going to hurt for the rest of your life. And that was one of the most comforting things I heard at the time. I was like, that sounds really accurate. Thank you. And five years later, my mom, it's like, yeah, it still hurts. And the relationship still continues, you know, and it's been 18 years now since my sister died. She died when I was 20. Um, I'm aging myself here. But um, we're all going to die. And what I know about these intimate encounters with death is that death is a beautiful, beautiful teacher of life. And I've been blessed through these experiences to be in close conversation with many friends in the final days and hours of their loved ones' departures. And I've been able to support them in having hard conversations. Depression is stagnant energy. Grief is, is very alive. And it, it, they're different, right? Like, like if you're in grief, it's, it's also, it's energy in motion, it's emotion, like it's let it happen. I'm sad and still I'm scared and still I, you know, I feel, and it's like an invitation to really explore what's going on and to, to deepen the relationship that I have with myself. And in, in my efforts to do so, I create on purpose daily space that's intended to evoke my emotion so that I can feel what I need to feel. Really important to, to feel to source the support that we need from the inside and to feel. And the tendency is like survival. We want to like fight, fight, freeze. We want to shut it up. We want to like, we don't want, we, we don't want it. <laughs> and it's here. So like, how do we be here with it? Well, you spoke about sort of setting aside time in a day. And as a chronic scheduler, I really like the idea of scheduling in my emotional timeframes in my day how does that how does that actually work for you is it um in the morning is it in the evening is it a google cal invite to yourself like what does that look like I wish I was as organized as you are I mean I definitely have a strong morning practice uh I move in the morning but like sometimes I'll notice like in the afternoon that I'm starting to like get a little weird with myself and by that I mean I'm getting depressed I really want to eat more cookies I'm like want to go lay in bed and like I totally allow myself to lay in bed right now also talk a lot about the importance of of crying which is yeah. also something I have a chronic inability to do it's like a reflex in my body where when I'm about to cry there's a lump in my throat I can feel it my eyes get hot and then my body rejects the process and pushes it back down 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 what's your relationship with crying what you just said is also so connected to the presentation, right? To like the way that like you show up in a room, right? Like there's this like quieting, this like kind of pushing sure. down uh, where I want, where like the invitation, Omen's invitation is open heart, like widen the space across your chest, show up, feel it all. You got to feel it to heal it. That's why I like to say that. So I, cr I try to cry every day. <laughs> and like I said, use that language right now because I literally try to cry every day. Um, I'm feeling a lot. And I know that, that while we signed up for this curriculum of separation and it's one, there's a lot of pain in the field. There's a lot of fear in the field. There's a lot of sadness in the field, you know, and, and we've talked about like, you know, I'm single and, and I really deeply want partnership and, and I feel lonely and I, and I feel afraid around, around, will it happen? And the truth is I don't know. Like, I only know right now. 
and, 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 and I can meet myself with loving kindness and be my own partner right now. And, and I talk a lot about touch as a powerful medicine and literally my own hands on my own body is a powerful medicine and, and, and your hands on your body, like touch yourself. And it doesn't have to, you know, like, yeah, sure. Go, go crazy. But like literally just kindly resting your hands on your belly or your heart and to be, you know, to attend and befriend to the life that's inside. And yeah, like cry. <laughs> I, I crying, I call it a soul shower. Mm. Rinse and repeat. Can't stay clean on yesterday's shower. You got to do it again. Got to do it again. <laughs> you can't stay clean on yesterday's shower. <laughs> um, wow. True. All very true stuff that I'm, I'm definitely going to try and work on. I think maybe one vulnerability challenge in the future has to involve some kind of crying. The challenge that I was given was really around the the concept of of giving a compliment, an authentic compliment to a stranger. And you did this amazing workshop um, around giving and receiving. And I wanted to speak a little bit into that because we generally seem to find it easier to give rather than to receive something nice about being the gift giver and making other people happy. But we find receiving really difficult. I know I personally have no idea how to receive compliments I don't know where that comes from um but I can't I ignore them I pretend I basically didn't hear them or I I drop a spoon so that I have something else to do because I can't face the compliment I think part of it is as you say I don't feel like I have the language and the verbiage to really respond to a compliment in a way that uh doesn't feel embarrassing I don't know how to say thank you in a in a truly authentic meaningful way so I guess if you could first give me the right words to use because you are my dictionary for saying things better and if you could let me know a bit more about your concepts around giving and receiving the words to use when you someone offers kindness to you in words are very simple thank you you said it already. It's like, thank you. And then allow yourself to receive it, like pause and take it in. You know, let the wall come down. Let yourself be loved with the words of another. I'm scared I might crush the other person with the weight of my wall, though. <laughs> <laughs> like if my wall comes down, it'd be like a ton of bricks onto the other person. Mm. Wow. Wow. That's a story. And also, and also like a reflection of the heaviness that, that you, you know, that you carry and like, and, and the idea of letting it go. It's like, I'm going to crush someone with this, this solution. So maybe you need some ketamine. <laughs> More than maybe, probably very likely. In, the, in, a, in a therapeutic setting. Only in a therapeutic setting. It's a back and forth to give and receive. And we know that the gift is so often in the giving and you're such a generous person and you're, you're constantly in contribution. You're constantly in contribution. And what you get to be reminded of is that you can't give to someone who can't receive. To open your heart to the gifts of another allows them to be in a full place of giving. 
it's also about that vulnerability and the connection. It's an opening. And when we thwart something as simple as a compliment and pick up the spoon and deflect the words and the expression, we disrupt the, the exchange. We're all exchanging all the time, but like it's, it's discordant, it's unmet. So to give requires a receiver. Yeah, I didn't receive her compliment well and that disrupted a lot of her giving. She wasn't able to give because I wasn't able to properly receive. And also for many people to give a compliment is also an act of vulnerability. And so when you don't receive it, it creates like an unfavorable precedent around what vulnerability will be met by. Yeah, and then it brings us back to that communication question of if I'm not meeting somebody else's vulnerability in the right way, then they're not going to be vulnerable with me again. They're going to start building up this wall because they know how I'll react to it. This is insightful stuff. You you should be a therapist. My final question is, what do you want to be remembered for? I'd like to have a more grandiose answer, but the word that comes to mind is kindness. I, I have many wishes and goals, but I, I, kindness is king. Let us meet and greet ourselves with kindness. Connection, connection, connection. Oof, connection. And that it's all welcome. The ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, the, the, the beauties and the ugliness, all of it. Like the death and the life, the rebirth. Meet it all kindly. Thank you. Well, I have one final um, section to this podcast where I'm going to, at the end of every interview, sort of do this quick fire round of what I like to call the uncomfortable questions round. Um, And I have a feeling that you're actually going to enjoy this and you'll probably have really good answers to this. Whereas I find this completely impossible and the questions are all questions I've been asked before and have brought me so much uh, squeamishness and embarrassment and awkwardness and I don't know how to respond to them and I just can't, it's too much. So my first question is, give me three reasons why you are lovable. Mm. I'm lovable because I'm human being, because I'm worthy just because I exist. I'm lovable because I am full of excitement and love and appreciation for life. There's like an innocence around me and a sweetness. And I'm lovable because I love, because I love hard and I love well. What is something you would like to work on about yourself? I would like to be more proactive around my creations and and less like fear-based and in procrastination. Who in your life would you like to connect to more? My niece, my little baby niece. Which emotion do you feel is the most untapped in you that you would like to open up to more? Anger. Mm. I don't do it. Anger is a really healthy human emotion. It doesn't mean that you, as we've spoken to, lash out, but it's like healthy and, and energizing and normal to be angry at, at moments. And I have a really hard time being angry. 
and like being able to emote and express it well would and will will deepen my relationships well if you ever need any advice on uh, how to get more angry more often you just let me know um and then my final quick fire uncomfortable round question is is there anyone you'd like to apologize to and if so what for I'm really good at apologizing maybe you could give uh me some advice as to how to apologize better right away clean up your shit if you spill the milk clean it up if it takes you a minute to recognize that there's milk on the ground that you spilled like acknowledge that too take responsibility responsibility is power people when they're upset like go into victim mode no power in victim there's no power in victim i love apologizing (laughs) and i don't i don't make a lot of messes but i make up my messes i have messes and i say i'm sorry my problem with sorry is I can't not get out of my own head and thinking that it's a failure on my part and I would be proving to the other person and therefore the world that I have done wrong, that I'm not as infallible as I think I am, that I don't know everything as well as I think I do. Like there's something in the, the act of apologizing that I, I take very personally. You got to put the whip down, step off the pedestal, eye to eye, heart to heart, human to human. Mm. That's work. That's the, that's again, connection. That's vulnerability. And if someone wants to judge you, let them. That's like, how does that feel? The whole judgment for someone else? Not good. Sucks. Like, so judge me. And, and then you feel it's, it's like an apology is another soul shower. Mm. I'm clean. I'm good. I, I said what I needed to say. I, I made a mistake. I, I, I own it. I'm sorry. Moving forward, I'm not going to do that again. And, and, and I learned. That's how we learn. You don't learn when we don't make a mess. That's true. It's true. Well, I think I've learned a hell of a lot, <laughs> as always, <laughs> every time I talk to you from this conversation. And thank you so much. Oh my gosh, I love you so much taking the time, but also for being my very first accountability buddy on this journey towards some kind of vulnerability for me, as we can see, there's a lot I need to work on. Do you have any final like tips or, uh, no, what I'm looking for actually is more a pep talk. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you're the gift. You're such a gift. You're so, you're, and who you are, like who you really are when you're being you, which is vulnerable. That's where the magic's at. That's what people want. I don't, I don't want the buttoned up, like, I mean, listen, I love the, I love, I love, I, I, I love all the, all things Tiana, but like, I want your heart. I want your truth. I love that you care about the answers to these questions. I love that you care enough to like pursue them in conversation. And, and, and I think that you're much better at all of this than you give yourself credit for. And I would invite you to loosen the story you have around being so impenetrable and invulnerable and just invite a sense of humor into it all. Let there be levity. Let there be like, you know, humor is such an important part of the mastery of, and the art of living. Let it be 
funny when you make a mistake and apologize. Gosh, like I'm gonna apologize. I, I, I clean up my messes quick. Mm. I think that that will be a big thing for me to take forward. And thank you so much for talking to me. A pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this month's vulnerability challenge. This podcast is an open invitation to join me on this journey by doing the challenges too. Modifying them or submitting new ones directly to me on Instagram. You can find me on at Tamborich, that's at T-A-M-B-U-R-I-C, where we can support each other and swap experiences because we can all be each other's accountability buddies. Let's get vulnerable.